Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I think by every person you come across that is intimidated by your success, you're one step closer to finding the person that won't be. I'm your host, Natalie Dranovac, and welcome to The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. For this week's episode, I sat down with Emily J. Brooks. Emily is a writer and author of The First Move, an examination of gender equality in modern romance. Formerly, she was the editor of Future Women, an organization dedicated to the advancement of women, and an associate editor at the Huffington Post Australia. Throughout this episode, we discuss some of the key concepts and research from The First Move. It's an eye-opening book that I feel all women should read to remind us of the inequality and penalties we still face in finding that sweet spot between modern love and career success. If you love this episode and any others of the podcast, make sure you're subscribed wherever you love to listen and be sure to share it with all the other incredible women in your life. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's kick off with your rapid fires. Worst dating advice. Be the cool girl. Never let him see you without makeup on. I'm wondering whether there's a third. There's a third that kind of goes with that, but I've lost it. You know, this, that actually made me remember that I once had a girlfriend who said to me that when she was dating men, she used to wake up before them, go to the bathroom and do her makeup before she go back That's into bed. That's what some women do. And I was like, that is absolutely crazy. Yeah. You do not ever do that with me, please. Okay. When I was worried about... Um, Giving advice, giving dating advice in this book, I had a friend say to me, look, there's a lot of people that have given dating advice and one of them was that. And once she said that, I was like, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll be just fine. My advice isn't that bad. (laughs) So best dating advice. Be yourself. One thing you wish women wouldn't believe. That they're not enough. One thing you wish men would believe. That... Partnering with a successful woman doesn't hinder them. 
probably the perfect piece of advice <laughs> considering the book you've just written. So I find this whole topic around comparing and analyzing the equality we strive for in the workplace and through social reform versus the inequality we seem to settle for in relationships and dating to be absolutely fascinating. And while I've thought about pieces of this puzzle in isolation, the way you've articulated it in your book, Emily, and brought it all together really got me thinking and wondering about not only my relationships, but also my friends and the broader social networks that I actually sit in. So before I dive in, I do appreciate how you are so clear on the lens that you bring to it, which is a straight, white, cis, Western woman, uh, which I think is actually going to be a great, considering the lens I bring to it, being married to a woman. Uh, but I'd love if you could share why you actually, what made you or what drew you to writing about, not just learning, but publishing a book about these issues? I was really, um, I felt compelled to write this book because I had a question that I needed to answer and it's really as simple as that. Um, I just kept finding myself hitting that question again and again and again Um, and that was whether successful women faced a penalty in romance Um, and there were many things that led to that but the, the first moment was I was assistant to the editor-in-chief of the Australian Women's Weekly and I was I moved over to Sydney at 20 at the time started working for her and I thought I was fabulous I was broke but I was working for this incredible woman welcome to the world of a writer yes (laughs) um and what I found when I met different people in Sydney and told them what I did was they all asked the same two questions and both women and men, young and old, asked those questions. Um, And that was, the first two questions were, is she married? Does she have kids? And I just thought, why are you asking those two questions first? You have me sitting here and I could tell you anything um, and you're most fascinated by whether she has a successful love life or not. Um, So it became very clear to me that people didn't think success and love could coexist for women like we know it does for men Um, because their power is something that's seen hyper-attractive in romance. Um, So that was really the the first time that question kept hitting me. Um, And then over the course of... The next five years, met more girlfriends in Sydney and we all seemed to have the same trouble in romance, but we were all uh, becoming increasingly successful. Um, and then I stumbled upon some research that confirmed uh, that the successful woman does have trouble in romance uh, and, and it just led me, uh, being the journalist that I am, led me into a rabbit hole of research uh, and that's what led me to write this book. It's so it's like that similar topic that happens when you see the award shows and how women get asked such simple questions. And it's almost the idea that we are such we must be so simple minded. We can't handle all these, you know, larger topics that men seem to tackle head on. Um, so it's 2020. And I really want to dive into the datability penalty. But, you know, it's 2020. And my question, how did we get here? And how are we still here? Where this old school quasi chivalrous man and his cave mentality around relationships not only exists, but is seemingly something that women are still told that we should actually aspire to have? I think we do know all the research shows that uh, gender equality and the conversation around gender equality um, is increasingly 
um, and always focused on work. And because of that, and because of that focus, uh, we we leave our home lives and our personal lives out of it. So mm. we know that gender equality lags in those areas because we're so focused on the workplace, which we should be focused on the workplace, um, but we should be focused on all of it. Um, and we are here because women have been socialised to cater to the male ego. Uh, we've been socialised to put ourselves second um, and on top of that, economic and, and political forces um, in, encourage us to behave that way. Um, and I also think when you look at dating literature, that narrative um, we are told again and again, we're, we're taught uh, when you look at the advice books how to be desirable and how to lock down a partner yes and how to be wanted um and how to lock down a partner where I and that's what this book is trying to do is actually say hey hold up what do you want Mm. what do you to what do you desire and because we've never been asked those questions it's indirectly uh told us that what we want and what we desire comes in second and so we don't prioritize ourselves we prioritize finding a partner um, and that instantly changes the power dynamic when we enter uh, relationships and and just walk into the dating world yeah you know what do you feel is required to break it and by it I do mean that social construct is it women continuing to forge forward or also is it men actually having to take a moment and take a beat and realize Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Maybe I've got the wrong lens of what I should expect from my partner or women in general. I think you always need to bring men into the conversation um, because they have more power um, in the world and in these conversations. But it's always going to require it's always going to require women to put their foot down first. Um, because it's so easy to fall into gendered patterns. Mm. Um so, I think I think for for women in terms of how change will actually happen is if we're willing to walk away from relationships or willing to not enter them because we prioritize ourselves and what we want and that fifty fifty relationship more than having a partner, and that's a difficult thing to do um, when we're also taught that when we find love, we're successful, whereas men aren't taught that. Men are taught they're perfectly successful and then they can find love on top of that. It's like the cherry on top. Yeah. And you even look at, um, I think in the book I talk about the wedding and the pity face women receive if they're in their early 30s and they walk into a wedding by themselves and they get this pity face from people and it kind of says don't worry, you'll find him with like this unconvincing wink. And men don't get that because the assumption isn't that they can't find someone. It's that they haven't found the right person to settle down with. Yeah. 
I remember uh, leading into my wedding day, so many people were asking me about the details and all the rest of it. And Lisa and I were quite casual about it all. And I used to say to people, we're spending more time on focused on and planning our marriage than we are our wedding day. Yes. And, and it's just not such a priority for us. But it was so memorable in all the other aspects. But it just wasn't this big thing that I think we both had grown up dreaming about, nor had we ever been like, we must get married for our relationship to even be successful. Mm. Yeah, women get told that Cinderella story and the wedding is is such a big part of that. Mm. Um, and yeah, it comes down to where, where we channel our focus. And I think if you're, if you're so caught up on the wedding, you are probably more likely um, to prioritise the relationship over yourself um, because that wedding is so important to you over the really, really good marriage. That rest of your life aspect. The rest of your life, yes. So you touched on the dateability penalty earlier and in the book you talk about it and the line that resonates best for me in actually describing it is, a successful man has never had to wonder if his success could handicap him on dates. For those who aren't aware of what this penalty is, can you talk a little bit about it and how you've seen it actually handicap women? The dateability penalty is a relatively simple concept and what it really points out is a man is less likely to settle down with a woman if she is more successful, more ambitious, more educated than he is. That is a turn-off to men. And uh, the dateability penalty is something that women have faced for decades um, and it's it's reinforced by history um, and our socialisation. Um, but, but what we're actually seeing which makes this story so interesting is men are beginning to change their attitudes and there's a slow shift in men's behaviour. And that occurred when women began to outnumber men at universities and colleges around the world, around the 80s. Um, And so three decades on, the the dateability penalty still exists, but it's fading But what's interesting um, in terms of what's still occurring is women are subconsciously aware of the dateability penalty, that they still – they've developed this kind of odd social reflex in that they still talk themselves down in front of men to appear more attractive on dates. And that's what makes this so interesting because women are uh, kind of quietly reinforcing the dateability penalty when they have an opportunity to squash it. You know, that story um, really reminded me of one time I asked a friend of mine, if your wife made more money than you, and I mean like it was one of those abstract things of like if she was making 10 million a year, would you be happy to stay at home? And he was like, ha yeah. Then he goes, no, I'm kidding. I have more to offer than a vacuum. (laughs) And I was like, wow, you have clearly characterized exactly what you believe she is doing at home. But, you know, what do you think is so threatening around the idea of a woman actually having success that men, that men are so frightened by it and that, as you said, women are downplaying and shrinking themselves to be more attractive? I think the way our society is made up, um, which is based on a patriarchal society, it does two things. It tells women that we are less of a woman if we have power and it tells men that they are less of a man if they don't have power or have less power. And 
So that's the odd dynamic that threatens relationships when we, when we challenge those stereotypes. But what we need to do is um, not just tell women that their success is fine, uh, but also tell men that them breaking this kind of toxic masculinity mould isn't bad for them. It's actually good for them. They're not going to lose anything. They're not going to lose anything. Um, And what we know now, which was one of the really interesting things I found out in this book, is that equal relationships are more satisfying and happier than non-equal relationships. Um, And that wasn't the case always. So when I look at my parents' relationship, they've had quite a traditional relationship. But if they had an equal relationship um, three decades ago, it it wouldn't have actually been the happiest, most satisfying relationship because um, the way our society was made up back then. And would you also say their own personal dynamics? Um... Well, I think the personal dynamics change uh, depending on how progressive society is because society doesn't always allow personal dynamics um, to be progressive. Mm. You know, it's this funny thing of like we know it's so bad for us but we continue to downplay like us being women and Mm. it's almost like we're kicking the stool out right from underneath us Mm. even though we know it's wrong. Yeah, and I think – um, what I hope this book is doing and and what I've heard from some women so far is women always felt this kind of pressure but they couldn't articulate it. So I think the first step to making progress is always awareness and education and if you know what the dateability penalty is um, and if you know that you are likely to consciously or subconsciously do uh, talk yourself down, you're going to be more likely to change it. Whereas if you have no idea you're doing it, you have no opportunity to change it. So when I was reading this, um, literally recently I had a friend and she was going through, I think it's Hinge, that must be the new Mm. app. She goes, oh, you can help me pick my pictures. And I was like, absolutely, let's go through it. So at the end I go, okay, I'd go with these five. They show that you are successful, that you travel, that you're this. And then the moment I said you're successful, I saw her stop and go, oh, and I go, what's wrong? She goes, well, I don't want that. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I don't want them to see like, like, you know, I'm very successful and I have all of my own thing and my own business and that I'm doing well. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, that to me, being someone who who sees women and admires them for so many aspects and facets was like, that is something I would definitely highlight. It shows your ambition. It shows that you can stand on your own two feet. And she was like, oh no. So question, do you think our dating experience would change if our Bumble, Tinder, Hinge profiles looked a little more like our LinkedIn ones? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think that would be great. Could you imagine? That's, a, that's definitely a business idea. Someone listening should do that. <laughs> yeah. Like link them up or something. So, okay, let's play it out. We're our LinkedIn selves and we go out, we don't shrink ourselves and we find that date after date, while we are being true to ourselves, we're no closer to finding that guy because they're intimidated and everything that you explained, the larger majority of men are. So what now? What advice would you give to those women who stay true to themselves but also want to be in an equal relationship and can't find that marriage between? I think by every person you come across that is intimidated by your success, you're one step closer to finding the person that won't be. Um, So I think it's hard when you're facing 
rejection in such a in such a personal sense but the reason we have to not talk ourselves down and be okay with some men not being okay with that uh is because we're we're kind of indirectly weeding out the the men that can't offer equal relationships but i also don't believe a man would actually say out loud I don't want to be with her because she is more successful. I think they would find another BS reason to justify not really wanting to be with that woman. And a lot of men actually um, say that they want successful women, but then their actions show that they're not okay with it. Mm. So while writing this book, I um, I would speak to people about the premise and everyone would give me their different stories. And um, I was speaking to one female founder who about this and, and she just started rambling off her stories straight away. Um, but one was that this guy um, just pursued her because, uh, because of her success and he said he found it so attractive and he kept going on about it. And they went on their first date and a fan came up to her um, and just started talking to her about her business and asked for business advice. And as she went to talk, the man cut her off and started giving this fan, her fan, his business advice. And she was just sitting there going, yeah. your actions just say the complete opposite to what you've been telling me for the last two weeks. I feel like everyone in that moment is, is kind of going, yeah, I could imagine that happening. Like, as you said yeah. that, I was like, I've seen that happen <laughs> with, with male friends of mine. Okay. So should women who want this be working to break down the barrier? You know, do I help, do I speak to my male friends to be like, hey, you should be looking and seeing and affirming female success? Or do we also kind of say, fuck it, it's not my job to make you a better man? I think it's a bit of both. I think we, but I think we can't, get angry at men and rule out men because I think that gets us no closer um, to finding some resolution here. Yeah, it's like equal play, equal pay. Equal pay, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's – yeah, I think it starts by those minute conversations that we have on a really granular level and if you are having that conversation with three men you know if I'm having this conversation with three men I know and 10 other people are doing it it is going to create some impact so yeah we do need to be talking to men about this um but it's a it's a double-edged sword and it's a tricky one because it's like it is not my problem that you have a problem but if I'm going to find the solution, I need you on board too. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're not going to be able to cover all the concepts you talk about in the book. The other one that really resonated with me and I'd really love to unpack is teammate love. Could you describe it and how we could do better to demand it? Yes. So uh, teammate love is not a love based on the role of homemaker and breadwinner and it, and an exchange of those services. Um it's based on a re- on a relationship built on real conversation and real negotiation. So I think the example I use in the book is um, a rela- a relationship where both the members in the team are willing to pass the ball of opportunity back and forth, but most importantly, they respect what their partner does when they've got the ball. Because I think we've been living in an era where men are quite happy for women to have careers um, as long as it doesn't compromise his career. 
Um, and the era that I hope we enter is one where men are willing to compromise as much as women are. Do you think it'll happen? I think if women ask for it, it will eventually. But it's slow. Progress is slow. Um, and actually, I was just looking over the book before I came here and it's that Zadie Smith quote that I put in the book, which is progress is never permanent, um, will always be threatened and um, will be redoubled, needs to be redoubled and reinstated if it's going to survive. Yeah, I feel like even with equal pay, anytime you have any kind of female empowerment day, so many men seem to have this echo chamber of being like, you've got equal pay, what else do you need? And it's like, you have no idea of the, the problems and the challenges that women face overall. Um, you mentioned in your book that there's, a that there's a lot that heterosexual relationships could learn from non-heterosexual relationships. Can you expand on that? Because yes. obviously that obviously piqued my interest yes. when comparing. Um, so the reason I put that in at the start of the book was because I included some research at the end of the book, uh, which showed that non-heterosexual relationships don't face the same problems that heterosexual relationships face. Um, and that is because there is not the problem of two different genders being in the same relationship. And with, with women and men being in relationships, it means that there is this assumption around gender and the roles that that roles that come around with that. Um, so the assumption is that the woman will do more of the cooking or more of the unpaid work or more of the cleaning um, or more of the emotional labour. Whereas I think when you don't have uh, gender in the equation, that assumption doesn't come into it. And you actually have real conversations and real negotiations yeah. about what each party um, – in the relationship is going to do. Totally. I do feel like we have a bit more of a greenfield space to actually craft our own narratives. Um, but it is good to know that finally gays are doing something better. Yeah. yeah I might well, the put, research confirms that. I might and put that on a pamphlet and send it to some <laughs> Christian organisations where they're should. telling us we're doing it all wrong. You should. And that's be because um, we finally have gay marriages. We've got five years at least of research um, and data that the researchers can actually rely on now um, and affirm that they're good relationships and, in fact, better relationships. I mean, in I could talk ways. about all that all day. <laughs> but I do, like, even for me, there are even small differences, you know, like Lisa and I get asked, are you having kids? Whereas largely all of my heterosexual married female friends, it's the when. And so there are all these assumptions that it's almost like we're given this choice because we're not, we're, because we're not in a heterosexual relationship. Yeah, you're not held held back by those traditional assumptions um, and I think it's because you're not held back by that, um, that big history that everyone's aware of and everyone tries to throw on you. Mm. So when I read your book, I feel that there's this gap of communication breakdown between partners and I personally can't for the life of me understand why women wouldn't share and demand what they want. I believe that reason that I can't understand it is the fact that I am married to a woman where we do talk about what we need, what we want, what we expect and demand of each other. And, you know, for me, when I look at the gendered stereotypes and the problems that single successful women are facing, I cannot for the life of me understand why my wife's personal professional achievements would be a bad thing. It's inconceivable 
unbelievable, this idea of like, how would I not want her to do better? And um, I'm not sure if you watch um, Ali Wong. Yes, I've seen a couple of her stand-up sets. She's great. So during a stand-up, she says, now I make a lot more money than my husband and my mum is very concerned that he's going to leave me out of intimidation. (laughs) I had to explain to her that the only kind of man that would leave a woman who makes more money is the kind of man who doesn't like free money. (laughs) So do you think we're not communicating or do men not like free money? Um, Well, actually, there's a study to confirm that men don't like free money beyond a point. What Um, do you mean? And it was by – I can't remember who it was by, but it was done recently, um, 2019, I think, and it confirmed that men are quite happy – men are happiest when their wife contributes to their household income, but if she contributes beyond 40%, they report more psychological distress and they are less happy in the relationship. And that's because it threatens their their ability to provide. Yes. Yeah, which is tied to their masculinity. Yeah. Um, But, yes, so they they don't and the data informs that. No, I am forever encouraging Lisa to do better and better, (laughs) please. Um, And there's one other thing I wanted to add. Oh, but we are making progress because it used to be that it was a divorce – a divorce? Um, It used to be that it was a divorce risk if a woman got a promotion. Um, Literally an actual risk. Yes. And if you were more educated than your husband or became more successful – in a relationship, it was there was a higher risk of divorce. Whereas what we know now is that is not the case. So it's improving in marriages, uh, but we're still seeing that penalty in the early stages of the dating process. Yeah, I don't mean to seem like I'm ramming my own relationship down everyone's <laughs> um, throat, but it's funny because when it comes to promotions, Lisa and I, since being together, both of our careers have had exponential growth and I'm you know, very grateful for that. But every time either of us get a promotion or something wonderful happens, we always say this is our promotion and there's a firm acknowledgement that I couldn't be here without you. And I just feel like having that kind of, uh, is it symbiosis? Would that be the right word to use? Yeah, and collective... Um, outlook yeah, on, the, absolutely. on the relationship. And the emotional support that comes with being in a supportive relationship isn't quantifiable sometimes. Mm. Uh, so I wanna, That is teammate love. Yeah, I know. <laughs> As I was reading it, I was like, I think I think we have teammate love. I think we do. Um, I think it will do one of two things and it'll be like, yes, I've got this. Or it'll be like, no, I've got, I don't got this. <laughs> yeah, look, it's really interesting to read books like that and even to do this podcast when you hear of contrasting experiences that women have. And I know at the beginning you talk about the naivety you had when you first started researching this. Mm. And that's almost the same feeling I had when I first started this podcast around not really understanding how certain women were experiencing the world and wanting to have more of an understanding to have that empathy towards going okay cool we don't all have the same experience Mm. and how can we get better at learning about others so then I can also do what I can to ease your burden I guess you could say yeah and lift everyone up with you Um, So you've previously been an editor at the Huffington Post, a journalist at the Australian Women's Weekly, and have published in a number of different papers and magazines. Now, based on your experience, what do you see as the positive or negative role media is playing in perpetuating these gendered romantic stereotypes that harm women? I think 
because media is is reinforced by numbers uh we lean to tell stories um, that the masses appreciate and the masses still appreciate the story of the kind of helpless woman and the strong man. Um, so I don't think media's done a great job traditionally in breaking down these barriers. But the really positive thing around the breakdown of media at the moment is you've got this democratisation and you've got ev- – everyone now has an ability to have a platform and to tell their story and to tell stories that um, that cater to minorities. Um, and and so I think the, the current breakdown of media with podcasts like this one being available now and, and newsletters um, being available now means that I think just in looking at at um, what media is being produced in 2020, um, I think there's a really positive future ahead. Yeah, I hope I don't offend anyone when I say this, but when I have female intelligent friends who tell me that they're watching The Bachelor or they can't miss an episode of Maths, and I just think there is such a distinguished difference but on those shows which demonstrate the clear uh, characteristics and qualities of what makes a man worthy and appealing and then what a woman is desirable for. And I feel like, how can you not see that? How do you support that? And even the, the concept of maths is, is just like... Desperate is the word I think yeah, you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that we, we didn't want to allow gays and lesbians to get married and now you're putting two people that don't even know each other on a show to walk down the aisle and marry each other is like laughable uh cultivating positive stereotypes for young boys and girls who will hopefully grow up to be this next generation and change is very important what do you think is important for parents to do when it does come to the content that their children are being exposed to i think it requires constant questioning and and constant effort um I've got a couple of friends that are mums and they they try to do their best in this area um and even giving girls dolls and pink toys and giving boys trucks and and blue books or whatever uh but I think we have made really good progress in in telling particularly in children's stories um young girls' stories of strong women and and women doing work in STEM and things like that. Um, but what a couple of my friends have told me who are mothers have said, there's not that literature for boys yet to show them to be vulnerable and that being vulnerable is okay. Um, and having those traditionally kind of feminine attributes attributes are a good thing for men as well and we know that they are and so I think particularly with the next generation we need to be focusing on on young boys and telling them that their vulnerability um, is a good thing. Like I know Lisa and I we often chat about having kids because we're always asked 
which we're not having kids, but we do play the if we did game, which obviously we're not. But it's never the rating on a show that would actually determine whether or not we would let our children watch it. It would actually be the content, the roles, the themes and the um, portrayals that it's demonstrating. And we recently had this conversation with a friend of ours who has young daughters and we're thinking, hey, you know, less rom-coms of having a young woman be, look stupid, just want to find love no matter who the guy is, you want to swept off her feet. But you have films now like Wonder Woman, you have On the Basis of Sex, which is about RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Lice, you've got Frozen, you've got Captain Marvel – and they're really strong women who are either leading the charge and then the man is either happy to be beside them or stand behind them. Mm-hmm. And it's like such a great demonstration and none of the men are in them are wimpy or anything like that, but they are strong themselves and you see that beautiful interweaving of a teammate love. Mm. And equality at the, at the core and, um, yeah, and challenging those traditional gendered stereotypes. Um, but the other thing... Other thing I um, see with the next generation coming through is is that gender's not going to play as big a role. You've you've got a lot of um, that generation that are coming through non-binary, and I think if if we can remove gender from the equation um, more than we are now, it it might actually do some really good things in terms of equality for everyone. So do you feel that with this next generation coming through and a large number of them being non-binary that there will be less of the, well, I guess you can't, you can't say woman because it's non-binary, but those <laughs> yeah. roles at home and that they'll just start to become roles? Yes, it will, um, it will remove the gendered assumption out mm. of the equation because they're brought up actually telling each other the pronouns they want to be referred to by um, and, and asking each other what pronouns uh, they would like them to use. Um, so, yeah, I see assumption kind of disappearing and that questioning um, start to take the front seat a little bit more and that will be great for everyone. Yeah, that will be so fascinating in yeah, another 10 it'll be years really, to look back. I don't know whether I'm just being super hopeful here, yeah. <laughs> but I think it, it could be um, a really positive side effect. Yeah, because I was contemplating as, as to, you know, we're reading this book in 2020 and if 10 years ago the roles in the media and what we were seeing in the news, if those portrayals had been different, would we still be needing to have this conversation? And maybe we wouldn't. Maybe we wouldn't. And I think a good example of even from a dating literature perspective was the rules. Um, And it pretty much asked the exact same question that this book does – Um, And it said that women's independence and women's success was changing the dynamics of relationships. But the answer to solving that problem was to talk yourself down. And this book is saying the opposite. And that was, I think, 1995 Mm. it came out. What do you say to those who don't want this new age man? They don't want to be this new age woman. They do want that relationship where they are taken care of. They, they're not striving for any kind of equality in regards to their financial success or their careers. You know, for you, do you just go, why would you not? Or is there an answer there to those women who do want the man to pick up the bill at the table? Uh, I think there's a part of me that says, why would you not? Um, particularly when the research reinforces that equal relationships are more successful and happier and more satisfying for both parties. Um, But there's another part of me that says, that believes that what this book is trying to achieve is both women and men getting their needs met 
And if your needs and your wants are that traditional partnership and you find someone that can offer that to you, there's no resentment there. And what what this book is trying to do is remove resentment from the equation. Um, and I understand that women want different things. Um, so as long as you're getting what you want, you'll be happy and satisfied. Um, yeah. And be happy and satisfied in the relationship. But traditionally, women have compromised themselves in order to keep the relationship. So if you're getting what you want, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, I do think that it's this – for me when I read this, it's this reinforcement of make sure you're valued and even if you're not contributing in the same capacity, it doesn't mean that your partner shouldn't respect you in an equal manner. Yes. And that the work that you're doing isn't just as important. And seeing that the work you're doing, even if that is at home, is valuable and is is a contribution to our success, not his success. Yeah. uh, It kills me when I have uh, friends who are stay-at-home mums and they say, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mum. And I think, well, you're kind of in charge of the whole household and you are crafting your children how yeah. is that not the most important role? You know, let's place a value on that so you can see your value. So therefore, when you are having those conversations with your partner, you do feel like, hold on a minute here, like I am bringing just as much value. Your Yours might be financially, but let's kind of cost equate that. Because, you know, I wonder how would we derive value and importance in relationships if we removed any kind of number? Mm. Yeah. You know, what would that feel like? What would that look like? Yeah. Um, and and part of the problem with doing the work at home is that it's it's unpaid work and we don't seem to value anything unless it's paid. Um, and that's because we live in a capitalist society. But we know that any um, any industry that women dominate, the pay in that the average pay in that industry is lower. It goes down when women dominate it. So women's work has never been valued, and we have to push for it to be valued more. But even the language you just used in the example of your friend around I'm just a stay-at-home mum, it's showing that we we don't value it as well. So if you remove just and say I'm a stay-at-home mum, that changes the power dynamic even in that sentence. Um, And then when you sit at that table with your husband and negotiate whatever you need to negotiate, you're coming to that table, removing just and saying that what you're doing is worthy and valuable. Perfect. (laughs) Before I get to my final question, uh, where can everyone find you? Uh, They can find me on Instagram, it's probably the best one, um, at MJ Brooks. And also I have a weekly newsletter that I put out that's um, my little baby and then I have a lot of fun doing because I need a deadline to keep my life in order. Um, It's called Side Note. Um, And if you just go to my website, emilyjbrooks.com, you'll be able to find Side Note there. Perfect. And sign up. So, final question. You're standing in front of a room of 100,000 single and successful women. No pressure. (laughs) What's one piece of advice you give them? Your wants and your desires are valid and you're enough on your own. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been one of um, a topic that I was really excited to dive into and um, you have delivered on so many fronts. So thank you, Emily. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun.
Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible. And all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.